couple of announcements. First of all, don't forget that uh, Saturday morning is uh, men's prayer breakfast. And so we always have a, a, a great amount of food there and tremendous conversation talking about the Word and talking about current events. So it's a great time for the men to, in the church to get to know each other, which I think is, is uh, very, very important. One of the things that's really struck me in the last couple of weeks looking at funerals as well as I think there were a couple of things that happened before just when people were going through difficult times is how important it is to have the body of Christ as a close network of support group. That that's one of the um, side effects of being part of a local church and it's an important aspect of being part of a local local church and local assembly and to be to get to know and to be known by the people in that congregation and you never know when when that kind of a thing is important you see it happening uh, all the time so that's just just an encouragement uh, the other announcements are I've gotten good reports from Jeff about how Camp Arete is going and that things have gone very very well I also got an update today from, um, I'll read it to you, if I can pull it up real quick in my email. I got an update from Clay Ward uh, related to what's going on at Plain Roma Bible Church, that they're back in the building where they were there, uh, before they moved. And um, the, the building was covered by insurance, but the content wasn't quite up to date, so they're still... Uh, going back and forth with the insurance company there so we can be in prayer for that. Also that they had gone up to Camp Arete uh, with the entire family on Tuesday and said it was uh, just just really tremendous and um, their kids were really excited about the Bible teaching and everything. So uh, we can continue to pray for them. And Jeff said pretty much the same thing and that I think John Williamson was teaching last night and tonight so we can be... Uh, and prayer for them, all, and that's probably taking place just about, uh, just about now. We also need to be in prayer for Vacation Bible School. Any updates on registrations? About twenty-six. Okay, so we can be in prayer that they can get everything done they need to, and that uh, uh, it'd be a great opportunity to get the gospel to these, uh, to these kids. I don't know of any other announcements. Deacons meeting Saturday morning. Uh, following the uh, men's men's prayer breakfast. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure they're in uh, right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful we can come together tonight to study your word. 
We're thankful for another day that we have to live for you and to apply your word and to be a faithful witness to those around us. Father, we pray that we'd take advantage of the opportunities that we have to stop and talk to people and to be a verbal witness as well as a uh, witness with our lives. Father, help us to be able to think clearly and to respond correctly to uh, questions, to opportunities, to circumstances, to not be in such a hurry to get on about our business when we can stop and perhaps ask questions and uh, probe people's thinking just a little bit as we have those opportunities. Father, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would bring to our minds the things that we have learned, the things that we have studied, and as we continue in our study on giving an answer for the hope that is in us, we pray that you would uh, help us to see the tremendous evidence that you have provided for us to validate, verify the accuracy, the truthfulness, the veracity of your word. Father, we pray that you would help us to focus on what we're studying and learning tonight. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Today, as I was preparing for the lesson tonight, I was going back over uh, various uh, pictures, photographs that I've taken over the years in the trips to Israel looking for various uh, photos that would help us to visualize some of the things that I'm talking about tonight. And one of my favorite files that I've kept over the years is a file of photographs of somewhat unusual signs that you will run into in in Israel. We all know there's a lot of problems in uh, the church as a whole, the visible church in Christianity today. And I've always gotten a great chuckle out of this sign that was uh, posted on the wall outside of a church in Jerusalem. Please, no explanations inside the church. (laughs) That's the problem today. Nobody's explaining anything. Okay, we're moving into our 18th lesson on giving an answer based out of 1 Peter 3.15. We're talking about the resurrection tonight, and we won't still won't quite get to the final part of the evidence on the resurrection. But last week I focused on the death of Christ. And that is so important because one of the ways people seek to deny the resurrection or deny the truth of Christianity is to say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He just passed out or swooned or something to that effect. There's only two things you can do is to say either the body was stolen or somehow he didn't really die. So last week, as I spent a lot of time talking about what happened in terms of the uh, torture leading up to the crucifixion, the horrible physiological effects of the crucifixion, to make it clear that it is uh, impossible that someone who had gone through all of that torture, the blood loss, everything else, going into the tomb would be able to come out of the tomb. We're going to see a little bit more about that when we look at what was involved in the burial tonight. So we're going to look at the burial. We'll look at the tomb and what was involved with the tomb, the ceiling of the tomb, the guards that were placed at the tomb, the security that was there, and then the the grave, grave clothes. And what I put up here is the lengthy passages that that we're covering here so that you have that Matthew 27 57 
to 28.8 covers a good bit of this. Mark 15.42 through chapter 16, verse 14. Luke 23, verse 50 through 24.43. And John 19.38 to 20.29. The scripture spends a tremendous amount of time covering the period of his burial, uh, the security of the tomb, what happens during the intervening period through the resurrection. So these verses cover all the way through the resurrection and his appearances as recorded in the Gospels. And then there are some other places uh, outside of the Gospels in the epistles where additional information is, is given. So the scripture gives us a a tremendous amount of information about um, the burial of Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, we know more about the burial of Jesus Christ in the first century AD than any other person in ancient history. You can think about uh, Julius Caesar, you can think about Alexander the Great, you can think about any number of uh, pharaohs, but we may have discovered some archaeological remains, but we don't have the inscriptional evidence, the written evidence. We know more about the burial of Jesus than any other person in history, infinitely more. We know who took down his took his body down from the cross. We know how they treated it, how it was wrapped at the scene, and with what. We know what the burial clothes were. We know the precise location of the tomb. We know who owned the tomb. We know who he was, what he did, where he was from. We know much more about Jesus' death than than anybody else. Nothing comes close to the kind of documentary evidence for his death than any other person in the ancient world. Now, what we're doing in this concluding section of our study on Apologetics is addressing three popular questions that people run into. Can we trust the Bible? Who was Jesus? And did Jesus really rise from the dead? The first goes to validation. Well, that's just what the Bible says. But, you know, that was a collection of myths, and that was written several hundred years after any of those things happened, and they made a lot of mistakes and those kinds of things. So I tried to go through that and summarize it and give you some just some real crisp information that you can use. Then who was Jesus? We looked at his claims. We looked at prophecies that were fulfilled at the first coming. We looked at the classic argument uh, for the identity of Jesus, uh, Lord, liar, or lunatic, that he, with you, when you look at his claims, you're, you're only left with three options. He was who he claimed to be, or he was telling a lie. If he was telling a lie, he was either intentionally deceptive or he was self-deceived. In either case, he's, he's either uh, one of the worst criminals and deceivers in all of history, or he was an absolute uh, psychotic. The evidence doesn't fit any of those options, so people are not free to hide behind the idea that he was a good man, he was a good teacher, he was a moral reformer. Those options are not left to anybody. And then the most important sign as we said, is his resurrection. And remember in Acts 1, Jesus had appeared to his disciples with many convincing proofs. That's the evidence. And I pointed out in the first part of this series that the issue isn't evidence. 
The issue is how we use the evidence. And some people treat evidence as if it's just neutral, as if the interpretation of evidence is not affected by, by man's sinfulness, corruption, total depravity, and negative volition. And so we can't treat evidence for the believer as you look at a fact, what you think of maybe as a brute fact, is not the same. It's already interpreted. You've already interpreted. That's not the same as the unbeliever. And so how we go about that is what we focused on in the initial part of the, of the study. These are the key passages on the resurrection of Jesus, Matthew 28, 1 through 10, Mark 16, 1 through 11, Luke 24, 1 through 12, and John 20, 1 through 18. As I said last time, we, I talked about the death of Christ, the, uh, the brutal uh, torture before, and I ran across this picture on the side of, uh, I think this is on the side of the church that is located there at the Garden of Gethsemane, a depiction of Jesus being bound and being hauled uh, to Pontius Pilate while they are uh, beating him and whipping him along the way. What we're going to look at in this last section today, tonight, and next week is the burial, what was involved in the burial, and just read through and summarize the passages so we can see that. We're going to talk about what was involved in securing the tomb so we know that they, they knew Uh, The Pharisees came to Pilate and said, this man said that he would rise from the dead in three days, so uh, we need to prevent the disciples from creating a a fulfilled prophecy here, so we need to put a guard on the tomb to keep them from stealing the body. So what was involved in securing the tomb? And that involves also the seal that's placed on the tomb, what, what the nature of that was, the guard at the tomb, the nature of the Roman guards and the guard detail, the desertion of the disciples, that's, that's real evidence because these guys uh, completely deserted Jesus at the time of his arrest, and yet two days later they're willing to die for him, so something significant happened in the intervening period. The fact of the empty tomb itself, which never gets debated in any of the literature, nobody ever denies that the tomb was empty in the, in the first century. Uh, the grave clothes, what does that tell us? And then the uh, issue of the witnesses uh, after the resurrection. So what I want to do to begin is to just read through the different accounts. You can turn in your uh, Bibles with me and to, to Matthew. We'll just work through the four gospel accounts. And Matthew's account starts in Matthew 27, uh, 57 down through uh, 61. Now, this is sort of a prelude to what we will cover when we get into Matthew. So when we get to this point in probably a month or two in Matthew, we'll be reviewing this again. So that'll be important for everybody. Now, when evening had come, this would be the evening of uh, just after the crucifixion. When evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. The man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, 
which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. Then we turn to Mark chapter 15, verse 42 for Mark's account. Mark 15, 42 down through, down through 47. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he, brought fine, <coughs> then he bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Then we go to Luke's account. This is in Luke 23. Luke 23, 50 to 54. Notice how each account complements the other. They're not identical. And even though there are many scholars who think that the other accounts are all dependent upon Mark, they have additional information. And I don't think Mark was first at all. I think that's just something that comes out of the liberal theology of the 19th century. Matthew was first to, under the principle to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Luke's account, beginning in Luke 23:50. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member. So he, like Mark, emphasizes his involvement in the Sanhedrin. A good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. Then we turn to John's account in John chapter 19, beginning in verse 38, John 19, 38 to 42. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden 
and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Okay, let's look at this and summarize what we learn in these passages related to the burial. Before we begin, I just want to make four observations. First of all, the standard operating procedure for the Romans was to leave the bodies on the cross until they were eaten away by the carrion birds and the flesh rotted off the skeleton. And the reason was is to put fear into people. They would usually crucify along major uh, traveled roads or highways so that as people walked from one place to another, they would see what had happened. And so they just left the bodies up there. Um, they did that unless it violated local customs. In Israel, the Jews had respect for the bodies. That wasn't part of paganism. They didn't have respect for the body. Uh, but Jewish custom was to respect the body and to bury the body after death as soon as possible, hopefully before uh, nightfall. Josephus records an instance where Titus uh, re had, um, had crucified three Jewish criminals, but uh, Josephus was able to appeal to him to take them down from the crosses before they died. So, so what that points out is that even though they had set policy, there was a degree of flexibility in how they handled um, that policy based on local customs and other factors. Also, relatives could gain permission to bury the person that was condemned. So they could come to the official now, uh, Mary... The mother of Jesus was there at the cross, so it's possible that she could have um, asked or requested the body. But Joseph of Arimathea, who is the one who focuses on this, seems to go, be the one that's involved. There's no mention of, of Mary being involved. And since he is one of the members of the council, member of the Sanhedrin and highly respected, he would be in a position of authority where Pilate would be uh, inclined to respond to his request. Uh, we learn from John's account that Nicodemus was also involved and that both of these men were still on the, uh, were Pharisees, still on the Sanhedrin, and they were, uh, but they were secret believers. And since the grave itself that we know of, we, I'm pretty sure we know of its location, was destroyed in 1009 which was roughly a thousand years ago by Al-Hakim, who was the caliph of Egypt at the time. He was kind of a radical religious nut job, and he wanted to completely eradicate any evidence of, of Christianity or Judaism uh, from any of these religious sites in, in Israel. He was not on the throne very long, but that's one of the occasions for the, the, um, the Crusades is that he was defacing and destroying, literally the word deface kind of minimizes it. They were trying to completely eradicate anything that was related to historical evidence of Christianity. And so he basically had the, the hillside where this uh, tomb was located completely Destroyed so that it was just taken down to level ground. That's why, and I've got some pictures of it in here. That's why when you go into the uh, what is called the edicule 
inside the church of the holy sepulcher and you go in there and you go in and you look down and there's a piece of glass over rock and you're thinking well where's the cave there is no cave this is the base of where the cave was but there's nothing there and that's one of the reasons that uh, the the, the uh, patriarch of Constantinople requested aid from the Pope in Rome to send soldiers is because as as Christians were making their pilgrimage to to the uh, Holy Land to Jerusalem, they were being attacked by Muslims along along the way, and that the the Muslims were destroying these Christian holy sites. So the the Crusades were not an initiated attack against Islam. They were a response to the assaults of Islam against Christianity and against Christians. But, of course, you're never told that in any uh, public school classrooms because they're into propaganda. They're not into truth. So that's all that's there now. There's no cave, empty cave, that you can go to. Actually, there's a lot of empty caves because all of those bodies are all gone now. So we see a lot of empty tombs, and I'll show you some of the pictures in a little bit so you can get some idea of what those tombs were like. So to summarize the passages, what we see is that at the evening, as Jesus has died probably around 3 p.m. in the afternoon, he's got three hours until the sun sets and it's time to eat Passover. So Joseph goes to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. This is described in Matthew 27, 58, Mark 15, 43, Luke 23, 52, and John 19, 38. It is also identified as the evening of the preparation day. Now, when probably in a couple of weeks, I'm going to finalize what I'm doing on the chronology of that last week, and we'll do it on a Tuesday night probably. Uh, after I finish First Samuel, we take a break for one night before we go into Second Samuel. Preparation day is a technical term for the day before the Sabbath. It's preparation for the Sabbath. It's not preparation for Passover. It wasn't used that way. And so that's one of the, I think, errors, misconceptions that was, uh, that was often used to try to argue for either a Wednesday or a Thursday uh, crucifixion. We'll get into some of the other, other issues as we get into that chronology. So it's Friday night, Friday afternoon. Joseph hurries to Pilate. He doesn't have far to go. It's, it's less than, uh, less than a, a 200 yards to get from the site of Golgotha to the Praetorium, where I, I believe it is. So this isn't taking a, a lot of time. That was one of the arguments that um, uh, was used by uh, Graham Scroggie to argue that, that all of this couldn't be done in one afternoon because, he, oh, and he talks about how it would take uh, Joseph all this time to get to the Praetorium because for a long time they thought it was over by the Temple Mount. And it's only been recently that they've discovered that it, that it wasn't. It was over by what is now the Jaffa Gate. So it's not that far. So he goes back and forth, and then he has to go buy spices. Well, that that's another maybe a 100-yard trip to go buy spices. So this isn't something that's going to take him all day. He's not going to have to fight the traffic to get to the Galleria and then go through the Galleria and park and, you know, take half a day just to pick up a couple of things. So it, it's it's a fairly quick process. So that's the first thing that we're told happens. The second thing is when he comes to Pilate, Pilate's skeptical that Jesus is already dead. 
he needs a little validation. So he summer, he called for the centurion to come for confirmation. Now that's going to take a little bit of time. He's got to send somebody, but it's not that far. It's uh, 150 yards maybe. And uh, he gets the centurion. The centurion comes back and says, yes, he's dead. How do we know that? Well, when we got to his body to break the legs, um, he was already dead. So I, I rammed my spear up in his side and uh, the blood came out, blood and water indicating that he was dead. This is what we've seen because these are uh, experienced executioners. And so they knew that Jesus was dead at that point. So that confirms the death of Jesus. He's not just passed out. That's in Mark 15, 44 and 45a. And you can compare that to John 19, 34 and 35. Then we're told some things about Joseph. We're told that Joseph is a wealthy man from Arimathea. This is a, a small town, and that's in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-seven a We're told he's a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, so he is a ruler of the Jews as well. He's on the council, so he's highly respected. This tells us that he is, has gone through rabbinical training, we were, he's told, we're told that he would have known from that the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He is a well-educated man. Uh, he is a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. He has authority, responsibilities. This is in Mark 15, 43a and Luke 23, 50b. You sort of break verses down into three or four sections to get to the individual section. We're also told that he, in the meeting with the Sanhedrin, doesn't consent to their decision or what they were doing to condemn Jesus. So that tells us that he wasn't so secret, that he and Nicodemus probably, when they took a vote, they stood against the rest of the Sanhedrin. So it tells us that they took some kind of a vote and they were able to express their opposition to what had taken place and he stood his ground as a disciple of Jesus. That's in Luke 23:51a. We're also told that he was a good and just man. That goes to his character. He is standing up for the truth. He is a man of integrity and virtue. That's in Luke 23:50c. He is also a disciple of Jesus. Notice that it's Matthew who tells us this? John is well, but Matthew is the gospel that emphasizes discipleship. Remember at the end of Matthew, in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Jesus' last words to the disciples are to go and make disciples. All the way through Matthew, you have this emphasis on being a disciple. A disciple isn't a believer in Jesus. A disciple is a believer in Jesus who decides to be more than just someone who's saved, but to grow to maturity and be a student of Jesus and to apply what he teaches. Anyone can be a believer and trust in Christ. That doesn't make you a disciple. Being a believer is what gets you eternal life. Being a disciple is what gets you maturity and spiritual growth. So he's a disciple of Jesus who is waiting for the kingdom of God. That's in Mark 15:43c and Luke 23:51c. He understood eschatology. He understood Jesus came to offer the kingdom, and he, like the other, like the twelve, waiting for that kingdom to come. 
And we've studied this before in Acts 1, just immediately before the ascension, the disciples said, well, Lord, is it now that you're going to bring the kingdom? They didn't quite get it that it was postponed for a long time, at least 2,000 years now. Fourth thing we learn is that Pilate commanded that the body was to be given to Joseph. So he gives orders to the centurion, give the body to Joseph. And this is recorded in three of the Gospels, Matthew 27, 58b, Mark 15, 45b, and John 19, 38c. So there is order here, and Pilate would not have given that order unless he was convinced that Jesus was dead. So this idea that her, that uh, who Schoenfield and others come up with this swoon theory is just purely bogus based on the evidence. They just have to deny all the written evidence as being uh, inaccurate. The fifth thing that we learn is that Joseph then took the body of Jesus. The way it's written is as if he, as if he took it down that's probably not likely he would have had somebody else there, but he's the responsible party for taking down the body. And then he and Nicodemus wrapped the body in a clean linen cloth. They would take linen, they would take strips of linen, and then they would wrap the body tightly with this linen. Now, that's important when we come back to this idea that, well, Jesus just passed out and he came to... He's wrapped tightly with this linen and uh, within the folds of the linen and the strips of linen, they would have put all of these spices. And that was weighed about 75 pounds, according to the, you know, the text says 100 pounds, but that's a 12 ounce pound. So that's about 75 pounds in terms of how we, uh, how we weigh things. Sixth thing we learn is that Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, which was pretty standard, about 100 pounds, which, as I said, that would be 75 pounds as we weigh things with a 16-ounce pound, about 100 pounds, which were wrapped in the strips of linen, which was the custom. That's John 19.40. Now, one of the things that's interesting about that, that, that the evidence that we have from a statement from Chrysostom, is that they would take they would wrap the body in the linen and then they would put the myrrh along the, the strips of linen and the aloes. But the mixture of the myrrh, uh, I guess it was kind of a paste or something like that because it would cause the strips of linen to stick to the body. Okay, now that's important. Then you wrap another layer, you wrap more uh, spices in there and you continue to do this. And this is going to not only stick to the body, but it's also going to uh, thicken up a little bit. So if you're wrapped like this, first of all, you don't have any mobility. It's like being in a straitjacket. And second, if you were to get out of this stuff, you're going to have to peel it off like pulling adhesive tape off of your body. So this idea that here he's gone through all of these beatings and whippings and everything else, and now he's got to somehow uh, pull a Houdini and get out of this straitjacket. Where's he got the strength to do that? And he has to peel it off of his body. That just doesn't fit any of the evidence whatsoever. So that is the significance of this, this piece of evidence. 
seventh thing that we see is that the scriptures emphasize that this is an unused tomb. Uh, it's a new tomb that has been hewn out of the rock, which was pretty standard. They would use some caves, but usually they would have the um, have the tombs carved out. And depending on how many people were in the family, they would create various uh, niches for the uh, bodies to be laid for the first year, and then then they would be. Uh, after the flesh had decomposed off of the bones, then they would collect the bones and put them in an ostraca, which is a bone box. And then they would, that would be sealed up and they, that would be placed on a, on a shelf. So this was an unused tomb. It had never been used before. Uh, Joseph had uh, used this is emphasized in three of the Gospels, Matthew 27, 60, Mark 15, 46, and Luke 23, 53, and that this was in a garden in the place where Jesus was crucified. Now, I bet most of you never paid attention to that little phrase. It's in a garden in the place where Jesus was crucified. It always surprises people, surprised me the first time I went to Israel and went into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, that it's probably 75 yards or less from Golgotha, the site where they believed, and it could be anywhere in there, where it was the side of the hillside where Jesus was crucified to the site of the grave. It's very close, maybe 50 yards. That's very close. Uh, probably from the distance of the front door of the church to the back door of the church. It's just not very far. And yet we think that it was a, a long distance. So it's it's just right there, very, very, very close. So it's this was in the garden there. Okay, eighth point is that the treatment of the body and its placing in the tomb is witnessed by Mary Magdalene and the other Mary and the, uh, the mother of Joseph, according to Matthew twenty-seven sixty-one. So we, we have two witnesses who are observing the fact that his dead, and they, they love Jesus. They care deeply about Jesus. So if Jesus is still alive, why would they be mourning and wanting to go back two days later to wrap the body in further, in further uh, spices? So they're watching and they're witnesses that everything is being done and they're there as late as they can until, until dusk. And then ninth, we see that Matthew alone relates that it's Joseph's own tomb, John that it was in a garden and in the place where he was crucified. All except Mark notice the newness of the tomb. John does not mention that it belonged to Joseph. So that's sort of a summary from Henry Alford's work on the uh, Greek New Testament. So each brings out distinct things. Uh, not everybody covers all of the all of the details. So this this helps us to understand uh, understand these things. Alfred Adersheim, who was a classic Messianic Jew, he'd been trained to be a rabbi. No, I don't think that's right. I've got him confused with somebody else. But he was a trained Jew, uh, Orthodox Jew, who became a believer in the mid-19th century and then he went on to, uh, to teach at various uh, institutions and wrote a classic work that has been called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, and it's about that thick. And it is one of the best works, only to be surpassed by a current 
four-volume set that's coming out by Arnold Fruchtenbaum. First two volumes I know are out because I have them. I was told by Arnold the third one was supposed to have come out in June, but I haven't bought it yet. And the fourth one is supposed to be out by the end of this year. The reason this is superior to Adersheim uh, is, first of all, there's a lot of new information that's come out. Uh, secondly, Adersheim's references, references to Jewish literature were not uh, universalized uh, by the mid-19th century, and so his, it's difficult to track down his sources, whereas Arnold's work has identified where all these sources is according to current uh, designation. So if you're trying to do research to find all the original documentations in the Mishnah Talmud and all these other uh, various Jewish writings, you can, uh, you can do that. Now, Adersheim gives the following details of the burial customs, that first of all, tombs were part of the family possessions and were acquired long before they were needed. That's a lot like what we do today. If you purchase a pre-need funeral from the funeral home, you've got your lots, you've got a niche for uh, cremation, things of that nature. So that was not unusual. Joseph had purchased this tomb to make sure that everything would be taken care of in the event of his death. Sometimes these were natural caves, but more often they were rock-hewn tombs cut out of the side of, of, the, of, of, the, of the hills. Uh, bodies were wrapped tightly in clean strips of linen cloth, numerous spices including myrrh, myrtle, aloes, and later on hyssop, rose oil, and rose water were used. Uh, initially, in this case, there's a hasty embalmment with about 75 pounds of spices. Uh, that's not unusual for someone significant. Jesus was a known teacher. He's called a rabbi, not officially a rabbi, but he was respected as a rabbi, as a prophet. And so people would have honored his body as Joseph and Nicodemus did. There's a contemporary of Jesus, Rabbi Gamaliel, who would have trained the Apostle Paul, was buried with about 90 pounds of spices. So that is not uncommon for somebody uh, of, of uh, significance. Each burial cave, which is called the Maartha, had niches called kukin, where the dead body was laid until it had decomposed and then the bones would be put into an ostraca. Often within these areas, there would be a large room where the body would be laid out on a bier for uh, preparation before it is placed into, uh, into its uh, niche. So during Jesus' time, there's a um, just big, huge interest in the deaths of prophets and religious leaders, and so his burial site would have been known to everybody. It was typical for people to make pilgrimage to the sites of dead rabbis and other religious leaders. And so Jesus' burial site would have been known to everyone, and it would have been uh, very unusual for people to have said, oh, he's not there, the tomb is empty. Everybody would say, no, it's not, it's right there, we can go there. Uh, but th So the fact that it was well known uh, goes to uh, giving evidence that the tomb was empty. No, nowhere is anybody claiming the tomb is not empty. So w once he's buried, then the question came up about securing the tomb. And the key passage for this is in Matthew, in Matthew twenty-seven sixty-two to 66, 
So on the next day, we're told, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. So this is on Shabbat. So he's crucified Friday afternoon. He's buried late Friday afternoon. The next day, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate because they realized that, uh, verse 63, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. So a couple of observations here I want to point out. First of all, what I've highlighted in blue, notice that the, that the, the, the religious leaders are saying after three days, this is what he said, after three days I'll rise. Now, in our idiom, when we think after three days, okay, if I'm talking now, it's Thursday night, after three days would be Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, we're talking about after three days is Monday. Okay, but notice in the same sentence they say, therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, not until after the third day. So we think after the third day means the fourth day, but in their idiom, after the third day and until the third day are all mean the same thing. That's where people have gotten confused in trying to figure out what day Jesus was crucified is because they add too many days between Sunday counting back because after the third day, so they have to figure it all out. But as far as their idiom is concerned, after three days and until the third day mean the same thing. That means it doesn't include the third night. Now think about that. We'll go into this in detail uh, after when, when Jesus referred to the pattern of Jonah, Jonah, three days and three nights, every Western mind says that's got to be an excess of 72 days, I mean 72 hours. The problem with that is that doesn't fit any pattern of the usage of that idiom in the Old Testament. And we'll see this in our study in Sam, Samuel on Tuesday night, because in First Samuel uh, chapter, um, uh, we didn't, I didn't, hit, I touched it briefly in First Samuel thirty, when you have the uh, 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 David and his men capture that Egyptian slave. He uses both of those terms. He, 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 after the third third day and uh, three days and three nights, and then on the third day, as synonymous. That three days and three nights is a synonym for on the third day. That means it doesn't include didn't include the third third night. And so usage in the Old Testament makes it very very clear that all these terms on the third day, until the third day, after the third day, three days and three nights, all refer to the exact same time period. And we make a big error when we come in and we try to take at three days and three nights as the controlling interpretive phrase. And that's because you think like a Western Latin Greek thinker and not like a Middle Eastern thinker using uh, Semitic idioms. Okay, I'll say more about that when we get to that, that discussion. 
So in Matthew 27, 60, we're told that he laid it in a new tomb. So the women, uh, let's see what we learned from this passage back here. I jumped ahead. The women remain on watch at the tomb until the Sabbath, which began at 6 p.m. At that time, the Roman guard shows up and seals the tomb. And the Pharisees had posted a guard of Roman soldiers to keep watch over the tomb until Sunday morning. The, the Pharisees ask from Pilate. Pilate gives it to them, orders them actually to take a guard with them. It's going to be Roman soldiers, not a temple guard. We'll see that in a second. And they, the Pharisees go with the Roman guard to make sure everything is sealed. So they're out there. They're going to, before they seal it, what are they going to do? What would you do if you're going to seal the tomb to make sure nobody's going to steal the body? What's the first thing you're going to do before you seal the tomb? You're going to make sure the body's still in there. Okay, so they check it out. The body's still in there. They put the stone back in front of the, the opening, and then they're going to seal it so that nobody can come along and get in there or come out of there without breaking, without breaking the seal. Now, the large rock that will close the tomb is called a golel, G-O-L-E-L, which is rolled in, I've got a picture of this in a minute, rolled into a slight groove that's cut into the rock base to make it difficult to roll it out. Now, why are they doing that? Not to keep the people in, but to keep grave robbers out and to keep animals out. So they want to make it very difficult for anybody to get into it. So that it's going to take more than just one or two grave robbers to be able to move these stones. They're going to be very, very heavy, and you have to roll them uphill out of this out of this groove. Matthew twenty seven sixty says he laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb, and departed. Now. Here is a series of first century tombs that are located on Mount Scopus. Just this is um, the northeast of the Temple Mount. This is just below the Hebrew University. And typically, when we're on a tour group and we have, we're in the bus and we go into Jerusalem for the first time, we will make a turn and circle around by. Uh, Mount Scopus and stop here you get a great overview of the city and it's a good place to talk about everything but you're just right above these first century tombs here's another picture of the same set of tombs that are there of course they're all empty now uh, but that doesn't mean that there's been a lot of resurrections then over near the King David Hotel there's in a in a little park area there there's this uh, tomb that gives you a pretty good idea of what um, what this looked like. You can see this archway here. The entry into the tomb goes through here, and there's this this grooved section where where you have this huge stone. This is the golel that would roll uh, across there. Now, a lot of times, what they would do is they would take another smaller stone that was called a dofeg and they would jam that under, once they got the big stone in place, they would jam this or wedge it in so it would make it even more difficult to roll that stone out of position. Here's a little closer shot, gives you an idea of scale there. That's Wayne House uh, bending over and looking in. Yeah, Barbara, that's, that's the trip you were on. 
Okay, and then here's a shot looking down. Here's the top of the stone, and you can see this this uh, area here where in this particular tomb, they've created a little cha channel which would keep the stone into place. Now, that's that tomb. This is a Herodian period tomb, so it would be very uh, similar perhaps to the kind of uh, setup at uh, the tomb where Jesus was. Now, this is a picture of what uh, uh, some people think is the tomb of Jesus. This is called the garden tomb. It's interesting, in English, they were able to make that little uh, switch. It w used to be called Gordon's tomb for General Charles Gordon. If you ever watched the film Khartoum, if you haven't, you need to watch it with Charlton Heston, get a little history on the Arab revolts of the late 1800s. Uh, he was called Chinese Gordon. And he had been a great uh, uh, Victorian general. He had gone to China, and he was hired out there to defeat the uh, uh, rebels in the Taiping Rebellion. But he, was, he, he had a Bible that was probably scribbled in more than any of yours. Okay, and that you can see that at the British, British Museum. But he, he was kind of a... Um, he kind of did things his own way. He had his own view of where the where Mount Ararat was. He had his own view of where Calvary was. He had his own view, or Golgotha. He had his own view of where the tomb was. So it was originally called Gordon's Calvary and Gordon's Tomb. But for various reasons, they decided to take his name off of it, and they just called it the Garden Tomb. So you just had to change the vowel, and everything was okay. So he identified this, but, but, and, and there are a lot of people, and it's a nice site to go to. When we take a group to Israel, we always go there. We have communion there. It gives you an idea of what the original site was like because there's not this huge church that's surrounding it, and so it gives you a sense. But, but the problem is this hillside behind it is made up of 1st and 2nd century B.C. tombs. So this is, um, was probably part of that cemetery not part of what where Joseph of Arimathea would have buried uh, Jesus. So, and not only that, there's no historical record, no attestation anywhere until uh, Chinese Gordon came along and claimed this was the burial site. He's the first person in 2,000 years to say this is where the tomb was. Everybody else said it was over at the Holy Sepulchre. But it gives you an idea of how these tombs were. This is a map. I thought I had a better picture. This is the only one I could, I could come up with. If you look here, this is sort of an a, a entry chamber where several people can go in. This is where they would lay out the body. Uh, you have a small entry here, a small, uh, <coughs> small little uh, doorway here going into where the graves were. This is an unfinished grave on the right. And this one on the left was finished, and it has a small ledge here where they would uh, place the head. And so that gives you an idea. Now, this is what it looks like. This is the finished ledge over here where they would place the body. I don't have the corner there where the, where the headrest was. And then this was the unfinished section over here. So this this had never been fully developed or fully used as, as a gravesite. Uh, in the lower right picture, you can see the 
uh, finished on the left and the unfinished one on the right. And this gives you a si uh, an idea of the size of the location. Now, when you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, remember this church was originally two churches. They originally had a small church over the, the over Golgotha, and then they had another church, you know, 50 yards away, small chapel like over over the uh, area of the tomb. And then, as I said, in the year 1009, uh, that was destroyed by the Caliph of, uh, of uh, Egypt. So it's been built up over the years, and it often strikes Western Protestants as just really absurd because you have all the smells and bells and incense and everything else and, and people crawling up on the bier where they think they laid out the body of Jesus and kissing it and and everything, but it's really great to go in there uh, later in the evening, which is when I like to go, and nobody's there, and you can get a, a sense of this, because if it weren't for the fact that the Catholic Church built these churches over these sites, we'd have a holiday in there now. I mean, those churches may be distracting for people, but they did preserve those sites down through the centuries, and we can be pretty certain based on the evidence that this is the location because it, it has a record going all the way back. And I just recently learned, uh, discovered that there was, that the early church in the first century worshiped at this site. So there's evidence of that. So this is looking down on the tomb. This is called the Edicule. It was built in the 18th century over the site of where the tomb would have been. And there's usually, as you can see here, a long line of people who want to go in. You can only go in two or three people at a time, take a quick look, and then the priest there is always bringing you up. Hurry up, hurry up, get out, get out, and, um, and that. Now, if you see right back here through these arches, there's a couple of doors. If you go through that door, there's actually a small side room that has two or three tombs in it that shows that this area was a place where there were graves in the in the first century and this shows a picture a couple of pictures of these graves that were located there so you're standing in the open chamber and then these are the places where the bodies would have been placed uh, during that during that time and of course afterward then the bones are placed in these ostraca these bone boxes so that gives us an idea of the uh, burial process. They would have laid Jesus to rest in a niche in the rock-hewn tomb, and then on Sunday morning, uh, Mary and the other ladies were coming to uh, add more spices, further embalming uh, of the body. Now, Mark tells us that the women on Sunday morning were quite concerned about how they would be able to get into the tomb because of the size of the stone. They're not working out they're not doing crossfit every day so they don't know how in the world are these three ladies going to get in there and move this heavy stone uh, mark says in mark 16 uh, 3 and 4 and they said among themselves so apparently all the way to the tomb there discuss how are we going to move this 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 rock to get in there to treat the body who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us and when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. Matthew tells us, and behold, there was. Now, it's an aorist tense indicating that this had happened in the past. 
It's just simple past. There had already been an earthquake. It doesn't happen right then. This earthquake and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. So angels are pretty strong. They're able to roll that heavy stone back. Now, what's interesting is there's a comment in the margin of an ancient manuscript from about the 4th century that is in the margin of Mark 16.4. Now, there's a lot of information about this. It's called a gloss, and what would happen is that maybe much earlier, a scribe was copying this, and he knew something, and so he would write a note in the side margin. Sometimes these would get included in the text later on by mistake, but he adds in the margin, and when he was laid there, he, that is Joseph, put against the stone, I mean, put against the tomb, a stone which 20 men could not roll away. Now, some of the scholars who have studied this and written in details about this, um, written about the history of transcribing and how this, this would have developed, uh, concludes that this original writing on this, uh, this manuscript could have gone back to at least as early as the early 2nd century and maybe even more. So it could have been uh, something that was written down from uh, tradition about how heavy that stone was. Uh, we can't be absolutely certain about that, but this is makes sense and the evidence uh, could support that. A, a sixth thing that we see here is that the Gospels all agree that the women found the stone removed when they arrive. The stone is moved. When they looked up, um, they found the stone rolled away according to Mark 16.4. When they looked up, they saw the stone had been rolled away for it was very large. Luke 24.1 and 2, um, verse 2 specifically says they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. So what has happened here is that... Um, that the stone, the size of the stone, gives us a clear indication that it would have been impossible for the women to have moved it. It would have taken several men. It would have been impossible for the injured and beaten, tortured Jesus, if he had just passed out, to have moved it from the inside. And uh, since it moved, would have moved laterally, he doesn't have any leverage to move it left or right. He could maybe push if it was going to roll forward, but that, that is not the scene at all. And so uh, the evidence from his death that he was certainly dead, the evidence from the burial, the preparation, all of that indicates that, that he is certainly dead and not just having, having passed out and that the body was still in the grave. So next time, see, we still didn't get to the seal on the tomb, the guard on the tomb, are some of these other important features, but I, I want to work our way through this because these details are all very important. Now, we're not going to remember all of them, and at the end, I want to summarize it so we can sort of get our mental fingers around this and be able to use some of this information in a, uh, in a witnessing situation if necessary. So next time, we'll come back and work our way through the rest of the evidence. Father, thank you for this time together for all of the details that we have in the scripture, these incredible details that confirm for us with many convincing proofs that the grave was 
was filled with the body of our Lord. He was dead. It was sealed. It was secured. There was a guard there. There was no way of escape. There was no way that uh, he could have uh, just passed out and and, uh, crawled out. And there was no way that someone could have stolen the body. And that this provides the, the evidence of the resurrection, that something miraculous happened, and the scriptures tell us exactly what that was. Father, we pray that you would uh, strengthen our faith as we study these facts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.